two and two and one. Oh, shucks, I can't dance. Hello and welcome to Stories from the Open Gov, a podcast dedicated to telling the stories about what open government and open data look like. My name is Richard Pietro, and I am joined by Mike Gifford. He is the owner of Ottawa-based Open Concept Consulting. It's a company that specializes in web development with a particular focus on open source and web accessibility. Open Concept has also contributed to the Drupal core. Now, for some of us, that's a whole heck of a lot of tech jargon, which is why Mike is here. Not only will we glance over some of these tech matters, but, we'll, but we will also talk about how open source technology can help governments. Hello, Mike, and thanks for joining us. Richard, good to, hear, good to talk. So my first question is quite simply, do you mind clearing up your introduction a little for us? Like, what is Drupal? So, so Drupal is a content management system. And, and so what that means is that it's a, it's a framework that allows people to go off and enter in content into, into a database and allow it to be um, expressed in a website or for that matter, it can be, be put up in, 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 a, in a whole bunch of other ways. It can be, be used as a, um, a framework to go off and to, to, to organize and, and display content um, orally uh, through Alexa or for um, you know, through your mobile app, through a, 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 smart, a smartphone, and like in terms of, 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 uh, of you know, trying to go up and have responsive and, and, and native mobile apps. It's a, it's a framework, it's a content organization framework, and, uh, and it's, it's all also very flexible and, and allows you to go off and to do a lot with it. It's, it's, um, more people are aware of, of uh, WordPress as a, a, uh, as a tool, and WordPress is, is great, but it's, um, uh, it's more sort of geared towards blogging and for for uh, for simpler websites. Where this is about trying to go off and build something that is um, more more customized, more comprehensive. Uh, things like bilingualism and whatnot are are, are things that are are um, harder to do with a, a simple blogging tool. Um, and Drupal allows you to go off and to to create multilingual multilingual sites. Um, it's also uh, really useful to go off and, and uh, to to, uh, to to build to build sites that are, are accessible, which is why um, why I've, I've been involved in, and uh, I've contributed to Core and to a whole bunch of modules in Drupal. But I'm, I'm also a, a Drupal Core maintainer, so I have an official uh, capacity. And 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 uh, in every copy of Drupal 8 that's downloaded, my name is is listed there amongst a whole bunch of other people who've contributed tons and tons of their time to go off and to make sure that this this open source so- software, which is free for for every Everyone to use and drives three percent of the web is able to go off and to uh, to be as as good and robust as possible. Now, am I wrong in thinking that uh, WhiteHouse.gov a number of years ago under the Obama administration they used Drupal to build WhiteHouse.gov? That is absolutely correct, um, and uh, they they used it for um, well up until I think the the first. In the end of the first term of Trump's presidency, and and uh, um, I think they just realized that for a president that uh, that yeah thought in tweets, it wasn't really relevant to have something as powerful and as and has able to organize as much content as Drupal does. This is quite possibly the most political this podcast has been. This little exchange here between <laughs> Trump and, and Obama, but um, okay, so let's get back on track a little bit here. One of the one other thing I want to ask you is. There, there are tons of tech languages and, and program languages out there. And for people like me who, who are not programmers, it can be very confusing. Yes. So 
I want to understand the relationships between these languages a little bit better. So if we were to think of as an analogy, thinking of a car, right? Uh, would something like JavaScript and Python and PHP be kind of like the engine of the car? Um, PHP would be the, the, um, the engine. Um, JavaScript would be things like the, um, the automatic, um, you know, uh, window, um, oh, it'd be like the features for, of the car, the features of the car, the windshield wipers and whatnot. Okay. Um, it's, it's the stuff that is, is dealing with the exterior look and feel the stuff that you see, but you never see PHP. I mean, that's all under the hood. Um, and, uh, uh so you see, you see the effects of JavaScript because JavaScript organizes and arranges the HTML and CSS to, to display information to the browser. Um, so, so the, the JavaScript sort of is a functional moving parts and the, the CSS is, is like the, the, um, the paint job of the car and, and, mm. and the, the images, those are the decals you throw in the car. And where does Drupal sort of fit in that conversation or in that analogy? I'm sorry. So Drupal in that case is it's the, it's, it's the whole car. It's, it's okay. uh, cause it includes everything. Um, and, and whether you want to go off and build a car or an aircraft carrier or, um, a, a moon lander, I mean, you can, you can, you, you have, have sim you can do that all you need to have the, uh, uh, there's, there's an engine that allows you to go off and to, um, to power your, your website and organize the content that you don't actually see that. Uh, and there's a database as well that the, the database is sort of like the gas for the, for the car. And that would be things like uh, SQL or MySQL or things of that nature, right? Yeah, that's right. But but yeah, Drupal is is like the whole package, and and so it's it's hard when you're comparing something like um, Ruby or uh, Python to to Drupal because because those are essentially the um, the engine, okay. and and so it's like well, compare you can't you can't really compare Ruby with with Drupal because it's like comparing a a V8 to an electric engine, like they're, you know, they're both engines and, and they, they both do the same thing. And if you don't bother to look up the hood, like, you know, if you're not trying to build a car, it doesn't really matter. But if you, if you are trying to build the car, it, 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 uh, it does matter. And, and if you want to be able to have a car that has um, certain things built into that, like if you want to make sure that you've got comfortable bucket seats as opposed to um you know bench seats <laughs> yeah bench seats or 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 a milk carton stuck on the ground like <laughs> you know you, you're going to want to go off and 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 have a, a framework that that actually has has um has a lot of material and 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 and, and um development that's gone into it to go off and improve its its usability which is I'm assuming probably why, and for a lot of people like me, they don't understand that just because you can code doesn't mean you can build a car. You know, there's some specialists that focus on the engines and the pistons and things of that nature. And then you have your brake guy and then you have people that do the paint job, yeah. people that do the electrical. So that much within your community, while there's, you know, you can dabble in a lot of different things, it doesn't mean you can do everything. It, it's really interesting. Going back to the car analogy, um, I mean, I, the only car I've ever owned is a is a 1967 Beetle, and I, I went off and, and ripped it apart, and or actually ripped two of them apart, put them back together into into one, and drove it across the country. And and you could do that with a car that old, with with very little information, with material online. You could you, you didn't need to go off to take it into the shop, but if you were to go off and buy 
you know, let's say the, the latest, you know, Volkswagen, like the, the last issue of, of Volkswagen that rolled off the, uh, uh, the press or latest Beetle, um, you couldn't do that. Like the, the, there's so many electrical comp components that are built into that. There's so many special tools that are required. It's, it's been so fine tuned over, over the years that it's not possible for a, um, somebody, you know, with no training and education to go off and to, to put together a working, uh, viable, you know, vehicle because we've 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 made them more complicated, and the same thing as applies to the web. In that, that you know, twenty years ago when I started my company, you know, one person could probably do everything. Like there, it wasn't that complicated. Things had not advanced that far, but but now there are so many special specialities and there's so many different requirements and and so many different use cases that that it's not possible to go off and find somebody who's, who's an expert in everything. And um, even if you find a, a jack of all trades, like they're not really, it's, it, it's, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. There are, are people who are full stack de developers, but they still just know the tools and, and the, 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 um, um, the, the tools they know and, and, and the patterns that they've run into and, and, and they know what's worked in the past and can probably learn to go off and replicate and expand on that. But, um, but it's not like, um, it's not like it was. So it's, 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 you need to, to have more people involved in, in building and, and developing these tools because we expect so much more out of them. And that the truth. And uh, now that we have this sort of foundation for our conversation, I'd like to get into the meaty part of it. Of For a good long time now, many governments have lingered when it came to changing the way they work in the 21st century and the tools that they use. Uh, for example, even though it's been on the books for a number of years, Canada has an edict that says it must consider and use open source tools uh, as often or as frequently as possible, or the, the edict is something along those lines. But there hasn't been... I think the kind of buy-in, even though the edict is present or the directive is present, um, do you think that that government is giving enough consideration to open source solutions? If not, why do you think that is? I, no, I don't. I don't think that the government is giving enough consideration for open source. I think that the, I mean, initially it's, it's difficult to try and think about about this in terms of the long term and how legacy institutions tend to work, but but it's they're not really keen to go off and innovate and and so much of the time it's about trying to go off and minimize risk and and the for the for the longest time the 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 least risky thing to do was to to um to buy um a service from a third party and then be able to um incorporate that that afterwards so that you could just externalize the risk so that a third party is responsible for all the all of that um and and i think that that um that there's been a real effort um well under the harper government there was an effort to try and and um in you know to to try and 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 outsource all of the the it functionalities as as much as possible and to um like uh, whether it's it's canada.ca and web renewal or whether it's it's the the phoenix project there was there was a the 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 belief that IBM or Microsoft or or somebody else knew how to do it better and that government could just go off and set up a contract through a long process and pay somebody else to take care of it. Um, and I think that that, I, I hope that that, that, um, that belief is coming to to an end that there's 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 a a reawakening of the need to go off and invest in people inside the government to understand technology and to use technology 
and to be able to, to not just be consumers of technology, but to actually be producers of technology. There, there is no other um, entity in Canada that hires more computer scientists than the government of Canada. And yet they, they don't spend a lot of that time finding ways to, um, to build and to contribute back to, um, to projects that, that they use. Um, and, and I think that, that, a lot of this comes down to to building confidence in their team that and building and shaping the culture so that people are actually not just consuming open source tools because there there are actually open source tools that are used uh, throughout government but but actually getting governments to to start to to contribute back to them and to find ways to demonstrate by engaging with the community outside of the government silo to to actually learn how to um, to verify and to to um, to to build a, a better product that works works well for everyone. Yeah, and I think one of the examples of what you're referring to that relates particular, particularly to open government and open data is the open data portals themselves. So for those of you who are not familiar, there are really two big dogs in the community, which is uh, you have the, the traditional sort of over-the-shelf software known as Socrata, and then you have the open source software known as CCAN. And with Socrata, government can easily go to them and say, we want to buy a license. We want you to implement it. And you put it out there and we won't worry about a thing. And the, But with CCAN, though, you need to hire people that are familiar with some of those programming languages that we talked about earlier. So like this, it can more, appropriate, more appropriately customize a portal that fits their needs and their well, they're citizens. Yeah, I mean, that, that's a great example. And, and CCAN is a, is a wonderful tool. Um, there's actually a, um, a variation of it called DCAN, which is a Drupal um, you know, content uh, organizer and, and manager um, as well. So that, that's, that's maintained by- How, how by is the, it different? I've never actually heard of DCAN before. It's just based on on uh, on Drupal, so so a lot of that that infrastructure, like um, uh, CK editor, sorry, CCAN is is built on, um, I think it's a Python application, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, and uh, and 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 DCAN is just built on on uh, uh, Drupal and, and and PHP, so it's it's a uh, it's 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 similar in terms of organizing content, and it it it, it works very similarly, but it's it's uh, it's just a Drupal based initiative. Uh-huh. So would it be easier for government agencies to use DCAN than it would be CCAN? Is it kind of like you're asking someone to just go out and buy a car and do some minor modifications, but with CCAN, you're asking someone to build a car from scratch? I think that with, with CCAN, it's just that it's, it's um, I think that there there may be some government departments that where it'd be more more appropriate to go off and use uh, DCAN because they're already using a... Um, Drupal natively and, and CCAN uses Drupal as well, but, but it's a, um, um, at least the, the StatsCAN implementation does. Um, but it's, it, you know, I think that the, the um, having, um, it's just, it's, it's just a matter of, of, of providing options that make it easier for people. And, and a lot of times the, the organizing and, and managing that, that content, um, it's not, that difficult as a as a um, as a way of, of structuring and, and, and organizing content itself, mm-hmm. um, and uh, that that for for uh, for many organizations, uh, uh, CCAN is is the right solution, and DCAN just provides another option that, that is a little bit lighter and a little bit easier for people to um, to implement if they're looking to go off and have a, a data store, um, but uh, but that that uh, that provides a, an option that's that's more probably more in line with what, what uh, their, their current web teams are already familiar with. 
So you are a hardcore open source, web accessibility, open data a practitioner and advocate. Yes. So I, I have to ask you this question. Like, what are some of your biggest beefs on how governments view open source? So I think that, that the, um, the biggest problem is, is, is that, that uh, governments see open source as, as free. And so the big advantage that they see of open source is that you don't have to pay for the license. Um, but it's, it, that sort of mindset is, is um, it's sort of like free as in beer and, and not the, the intention that many people have had in the, in the, the open source or, or free software movement as in free as in speech, um, as, a, as a right and, and, and whatnot. Um, I tend to think about, about open source as in free as in kittens. Um, that, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Sorry. I didn't so, mean to take you out of your zone here, but that was just too funny. Please continue. It's totally good. Um, so, so kittens are lovely and we all like them. Um, but then they, they, they rip things up and you need to train them and let, you know, they have to, you have to nurture them if they're going to grow up and be a, a lovely mature adult cat. If you don't train that and, and, and invest time in, in, in working with the kitten, then you're going to have a very unpleasant life as a cat owner. Um, so, so it's that same idea that you need to go off and, and invest back in the community. And, and that could be a matter of, of uh, um, paying for things like there's, there's, um, um, you know, paying for, for uh, paying open source uh, development firms who have experience working the software and trying to go off and maintain those organizations who, who are, are leading the, the, um, the, the, the software initiatives that, that you're using. I mean, that's a great way to go off and to, to do that. Um, even going off and organizing hackathons and, and providing sponsorships for events that are related. There's uh, Drupal Camp Ottawa is, is a, um, there's Drupal camps all over the place, but, but uh, events like that are things that can be, um, they're always looking for sponsorship, whether they're in person or virtual. Um, there's always expenses that need to, to, to happen. Um, there's, there's also just trying to go off and to educate and talk about it. I mean, Drupal is used extensively in governments around the world, but you almost never hear about it. Um, the Prime Minister's website uses it. We built the Governor General's website with it. Uh, StatsCan uses it, which is still one of the largest websites that's, that's, that the Government of Canada has, as does Buy and Sell, um, as does Ontario.ca, as does Ottawa.ca, um, as do most most governments in in the European Union use Drupal still. It's it's very very popular in in governments in the United States. Um, Australia has has put forward an initiative to go off and to use Drupal and built their own. Um, uh, your theme and, and distribution around that to go off and make sure that they have a consistent look and feel that is, is uh, possible for, for governments, not just at a federal level, but also at a state and municipal level. Um, so there's, there's a lot of stuff that, that could be done, but in general, governments are not talking about it and they're not talking about what all of the, the work that they're getting for free by going off and choosing for open source and, and finding ways to go off and to, to, to help their communities grow and flourish and to, to, to get more adoption um, of these 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 software communities, so you know it, it, it's it's ridiculous that there are so many um, so many governments out there that are using the same tools and and yet they don't collaborate with each other um, on on this. They don't collaborate with the community. They're still sort of stuck in their silos for the most part and are not looking at ways to go off and 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 really benefit from the community aspect of, of a, of a, of a community driven software initiative like Drupal is. Uh, th this is, 
actually very relevant, uh, Mike, I think on how the government reacted after the COVID-19 lockdowns were announced. So for example, all of a sudden you have all these public servants that are just overloading the government VPNs. I'm not sure if this is still a problem or not, but are there sort of solutions that could have helped the government resolve this problem aside from just buying more servers? So, so I'm sure that it is a problem, um, but I'm not sure for which departments. And I don't know that that even the government itself is aware of of how 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 much they are the more they need to invest in order to be able to support a remote workforce. Um, there's there's a I think that they're certainly struggling for this, but but a lot of information is decentralized in um, across all the, the departments of, of the government of Canada, and I'm sure that the CIO councils are trying to go off and to gather this information. But but I think that that there there hasn't been necessarily a um, I haven't I haven't seen anything about a concerted effort to go off and evaluate and, and track the progress of um, the the uh, uh, the internet access and availability of, of access to the internal network of the government of Canada. I'm on the outside though. So it's, it's very possible that these conversations are happening elsewhere. Um, but a lot of the problem comes down to this, this idea that there's a, um, a government network that all of the secure information will be held within this government network. And that if you, you need to go off and, and get, um, clearance in order to go off and get access to that network. And then, then once you're on the network, you can be more loosey goosey about what happens inside there with, with um, the permissions and, and configurations and, and, and access to, to information that you can just assume that anyone who has access to the government network has, has what they need to go off and, and to, to, to access it. Um, and, uh, and I think that that's, that's part of the, the challenge is that, that there's a lot of stuff that has been put inside of the, um, the government network that probably should never be there. Um, there, there are things like uh, um, MediaWiki is uh, is installed on, in Government of Canada uh, instances in, in various different government departments. But the big one is is uh, GCpedia, and with uh, with GCpedia, like at the moment, you can only access that through the VPN. Um, there's no other way to go off and access GCpedia. So all of that knowledge base of information. Um, you, they could just expose GCpedia to the the public and have an authorization system so that you need to be able to log in um, through MediaWiki in order to go off and access any of the content on the page. That wouldn't be that hard to go off and to set up for them, but it would require a way of of thinking about how how security is managed and how they 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 deal with this deal with a more permeable membrane between the the government network and the the the, the internet. Um, so, so the the uh, I think that, that that one of the the um, the elements I was really uh, interested in is 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 uh, the the idea of of building an uh, an internet and committing to building an internet that that is is okay for for secure transactions. Um, and uh, many people will go off and, and remember the the uh, um, the heartbeat bug of uh, of a few years back. Um, it cost a few trillion dollars in the economy and was a, a fairly significant impact for 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 the economy um, and as a result of that um, many organizations started contributing to uh, an, an initiative uh, that is is managed by the Apache Foundation called the core infrastructure initiative and the point of this is to 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 take 
um, to look at the the files that are, are critical to maintaining a secure internet and to make sure that there's enough people reviewing those those little files for security to make sure that um, that there isn't um, that we don't have another heartbeat bug issue again and and, and that that three trillion dollar um, economic or that three three trillion dollar expense happened essentially because one little file was been maintained by by one or two people on the side of their desk for a period of decades and just hadn't gotten the attention that it deserved and there was an exploit that was within that that was not fixed in the internet and and it, because people were not contributing back to this open source software um, another thing that, that I'd like to go off and, and to, to, to think about is, is this, this idea of, of um, internet exchanges. Um, and and for, for government towns, um, like, you know, for that matter, you know, Ottawa and Toronto and, and Victoria, um, there's, there's, there's government towns where there's, there's a lot of critical government infrastructure that is, um, is being, um, th that, that should be shared. That we should have uh, common fiber or potentially um, common wireless available. Um, that that is 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 available in those these heavily government-oriented municipalities. Not that it needs to be limited to that, but but there are communities that have invested in in fiber and and have had a a um, faster, more reliable, more resilient uh, infrastructure. But we for the longest time we've 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 built our um, you know, the governments have, have built relationships with, with Bell and Rogers uh, to provide them with their internet access. And, and there have been, um, I don't think that those have, have really demonstrated that they are as resilient as we need, particularly in times of, of crisis like this, mm. because we should, a, a packet of information um, to, to jump between department A and department B should not have to get routed through um, a, a server in, in Chicago in order to get back to uh, you to, to, to jump the, between the two departments, but but often that's what needs to happen. Um, there isn't enough of an emphasis on on building a a resilient, redundant infrastructure in our municipalities to make sure that 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 packets are kept local wherever possible and only um, sent outside of the city when when we need to do that. This is. Um getting pretty technical for a lot of us. We're talking about packets and things along those lines. An analogy, we've had this discussion before, and an analogy we used at the time was this idea of sort of carpooling a little bit for these internet exchanges. I forget at the time, did you agree with that analogy or would you reframe it? I think that that, that carpooling is... is um... Is probably I mean that's not a bad a bad analogy. Um, Sierra has a really interesting uh, model where they visualize this as well, and, and 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 the way that they they provided their visualization was that that you know right now each department has their own freeway to to the um, to the internet, and um, they're maintaining independent freeways to the internet to exchange information back and forth, and so. From, from, an, from an Ottawa example, you know, Department A would need to get onto the Queensway in order to get to Department B, um, even if they're, you know, all, if they're both located in downtown Ottawa. Whereas if, if we just sort of built a roundabout in the, the, um, in the downtown core for information, then, then you could get off where it was appropriate for you to get off and not necessarily have to jump onto the freeway in order to go off and, and communicate to your neighbors. Gotcha, gotcha. Um... I want to go back to open source uh, right now because you were very clear about some of the things that governments are doing wrong when it comes to open source and, and how they should view it. 
but have you come across any government initiatives or any governments in general that are doing open source right? I think that there, there are, um, you know, governments that definitely are and that are doing some really interesting work. Um, Europe, uh, as a, uh, the European Union's done a lot to try and promote open source. Um, I see, I think that they, they see this as, as part of a way of trying to go off and to, uh, to build more economic de- independence from um, largely American um, tech companies. And, and that's certainly an issue for us here in Canada as well. Um, France in particular has seen a, a whole series of businesses pop up because of, uh, because they were able to, leverage open source tools in order to be able to provide um, high level support for larger organizations. And um, you know, if, if, they, if the, the developers weren't able to stand on the shoulders of giants in order to be able to, to do that, then there's no way they'd be able to, to accomplish these tasks. If everyone was trying to go off and to, to code from scratch the work that needs to be done, then it wouldn't be possible for a small organization to be able to go off and to meet the requirements of government much of the time. But leveraging open source software, you can, you can, you can, you know, for, 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 you know, you can access millions of dollars worth of software uh, for free um, if you're able to go off and to, to leverage open source code effectively. Um, and, and so, so there, there definitely are, are um, small businesses and government agencies that are able to do this. Um, I've been really impressed by, by the, the, uh, uh, the, the open source community in the U S government, particularly under Obama, there was, uh, some really interesting, um, things that came out of it. There was, was code.gov was, was one of the initiatives that, that uh, came out of it. Um, 18F is another one. You can see a lot of the, the code from, from that has been used in Canada and other government departments is, has been shared on, um, on the, the 18F's code, uh, sorry, 18F's GitHub page. So mm-hmm. there's a lot of, you know, governments that are sharing code and, and policy and documentation through, through GitHub. And that's really wonderful to go off and see all of the, the, the ways that that's being, being done. Um, and, and so that's, that's exciting to see. Um, I'm also excited to see things like the uh, Australian government has made a, a big commitment to to using Drupal and and to to invest in in a distribution of Drupal that that they're uh, that's able to, to to be used consistently across government departments and, and to really drive costs down because they can go off and build a a single. Um, distribution that is able to go off and to to meet the um the security and accessibility requirements of, of the government and, and be able to to implement that um i've got to say i'm also really impressed by a lot of the work that that stats can has done um stats can with the um their drupal uh wet distribution and all the work they're doing on on kubernetes and and cloud infrastructure it's really visionary stuff and it's it's amazing to see a small team of people in a in a government department um really going off and and, and moving ahead and sharing some best practices practices to the government and to others that that uh, that really um, are, are able to go off and help advance the bar and and to see that that the that the government is, is, is actually able to go off and, and to see that the um, that these tools and technologies are, are, are really able to go off and, and, and serve just not not just the needs of, of a particular department but but the government as a whole and and society at large you just mentioned uh, wet which stands for the web experience toolkit which was, from my understanding, one of the very first open source projects coming out of the Treasury Board Secretariat. And I remember uh, this was happening, I think, around the 2011s. Yep. And at the time, speaking to some of the people, because it was such a trailblazing exercise, there was a lot of meetings, a lot of conversations, a lot of legal. It was, it was a, an experience or an experiment that it, they really didn't know what was going to come out of it. The web experience toolkit 
it became sort of a standard across Canada for building web accessible templates based on open source code. Were you at all in part as a community member in those conversations in those early days? Yeah, I definitely was. Um, and, and it was a, a, definitely an exciting era uh, to go off and be involved in. And um, it, was, it was nice to see uh, Paul Jackson and, and uh, Mary Beth uh, involved in, in, the, uh, in Wired Magazine. You don't, you don't see government departments uh, for anywhere in the world featured in Wired Magazine all oh, that wow, often. I didn't know that. And uh, yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great picture. They, they, they look a little younger than they do, than they do now. But, and you're uh, talking about uh, Mary Beth Baker. Just yes, here. that's right. Yeah. That's right, um, and uh, uh, yeah. So, so, so there was there's really interesting times to go off and pull that together, and and I think the project a lot of effort was put into this in terms of, of policy and regulation and and sort of you know what what would it be like for government to to contribute a code um, a a um, um, a front end framework to the community using GitHub, um, and it was it was exciting to go off and to see that, but but they never really had the resources that they needed. Like it, it was always understaffed and 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 run in a very tight manner so things like like um documentation um was a problem and still is a problem trying to go off and make sure that that there's a, a clear a clear set of documentation around how to actually implement this uh things like roadmaps so how do you try and and you know, where is wet going next and what are the concerns that are going to be addressed in the next release um and and not to you know they, they, they did such an amazing job given the resources that they had um and it really does stand out um, outside of Canada as well as it stands inside Canada. But it, but it also needs to have, it's one of these things where the web has changed a lot since then and there hasn't really been the, the investment in, in WET that there needs to be to maintain this, this framework. So you have been, we've just talked about you, you've been in this space for a long time. It's true. <laughs> uh, do you think that we now need to rethink the open government, open data, and open source movements in the context of COVID-19? Has COVID-19 changed anything when we think about those movements? I think that, that one thing that, that does, um, we do need to rethink is, is just, you know, I mean, I, I've been, been involved in promoting open source uh, for, for, uh, in organizations for over 20 years, and they're we haven't made as much progress as I would have wanted, um, whether it's open government, open data, open source, like all of those are, there's been some, it's, there's a geeky clan of people who, who've gotten excited by this and have, and understand why it matters, but we haven't really extended beyond that, that, um, that geeky clan of people. And, and I think that to, just to really go off and, and, and to, I think what we need to rethink is, is what we're, what our aspirations are and who do we need to bring together to go actually understand how these, these geeky ideas really do matter and, and that they, they, that we need to start investing in them if we're going to be able to, um, to build a, a resilient infrastructure that we need. So I, I think that the, um, yeah, like, I, we, we haven't seen a lot of, of, of collaboration and, or as much collaboration around this and, and how do we, how do we try and, and not just, um, use these open approaches as a way to go off and, and to, um, to, to go off and, and to save a bit of money, which hopefully we can, but also really to allow for innovation to happen and it allow innovation to happen inside of government. One of, one of the projects that I, I didn't mention, that sh- but I should have mentioned, um, is all the, the open source work that's being done by, in the UK government. And um, 
um, the the uh, the notify project uh, uh, that the or the notification project that was developed by the 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 um, GDS team that the Canadian Digital Services team went off and was able to take advantage of, and start leveraging that out. So we're we're using a common code base to go off and to to build a messaging service um, that is used and, and available for for departments across uh, in in the government of Canada to be able to to reach out to to citizens through email through SMS and uh, uh, eventually, I'm sure to other other means of communication as well. So it's it's um, it's it's nice to see this this leveraging of, of of open source tools. But but it took teams to be able to sort of to sit down and and to think about what are the what are the opportunities for us us to to collaborate and and what are the things that we can contribute back to make sure that this tool is is more bilingual is more accessible is more more secure and and uh, I was happy to to say that the the Canadian digital services has done that has really taken a a forward thinking approach to to uh, using open source software um, that has been pioneered in other government departments and being able to find ways to to apply that, and we, we just need this to be the the norm and not the exception. I don't see why every government department out there, every IT team, isn't looking out and and finding ways to go off and leverage tools and patterns and and libraries that that are being used uh, by other government departments that have similar um, similar functions um, inside the inside their own government departments and infrastructure it's funny because you're really sort of talking about one of the things that i've been harping on for a number of years now which is sort of the marketing of open gov open data open source within the community and, and governments in general as well which is these tools exist, but I don't think we've done a very good job of explaining, explaining their relevance, their value, breaking, and essentially the culture of government, right? The sort of, we always talk about siloed governments and they don't talk to each other. Yeah. We always talk about how one of the biggest users of open data sets, for example, is the government because now they don't need to go through all the different channels yeah. and the red tapes to get access. So I think, we as a community need to do a better job of essentially marketing and selling our movements because unlike many movements, we don't have sort of a David Suzuki foundation behind us to promote and, and invest a lot of money in, in some of these things. So we, we, it, we're sort of left on our own on that one. No, absolutely. Um, I, just, I was thinking about how, how the, the, uh, a lot of the work that's, that's being being um, being done with op- open data was actually stuff that that even inside the government departments before the call for open data it wasn't available. So, you know, there were there were tool sets that st- were, or sorry there were data sets that were were sitting on in somebody's desk and was their their um, within in their fiefdom and that they didn't want to release or didn't want to have to share information back and forth or or agree to a common data standard because. They they preferred organizing dates one way, and 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 somebody else in another section of the department preferred organizing dates another way. Yeah. Um, and so you'd have these different varying data say, data sets. But when you suddenly have to start publishing information under a common open data format, you can't have. You just look like complete amateurs if you have have um, have different data formats and and otherwise 
largely identical data. Um, one of the things I, I think is is a is a huge need with the open data community is is just you know is not necessarily focusing on publishing more, but trying to go off and get government employees to look at consuming open data more, and what can they do as consumers, and and how can they engage with other producers of of uh, of open data to go off and be able to to really build a community around those data sets. So you know, maybe there's a, a privacy issue that that uh, that a publisher isn't aware of that, that you could combine different data sets to go off and to, to gather information about individuals that are being with open data sets that are being published or, or accessed. Maybe it's just about inconsistencies that uh, flaws in the data, but how do we build those feedback loops within government so that, that the Ontario government is able to, uh, is, is, is actively looking at the federal data yeah. and, and looking to go off and to, to contribute to, and also, um, you know, yeah, benefit from the work that's being done on different levels because because there's so much data that's out there, but there I don't think there's a real effort to to find to, to build a community around those data sets so that there's a that there's there's an ability to critique and review and and improve those data sets data sets over time. And I need to mention this real quick because I live in Toronto and I've worked very closely with the city of Toronto's open data team, and that's one of the things I give them full credit for. When they decided to revamp their open data program a few years ago, they definitely took a leadership position because they have the resources, they have the budget. So compared to a city like Sudbury or Timmins or, or even, say, like Kingston, uh, they have people that can work on developing sort of a template. And that's what it, they've done when it comes to their open data portal and their open data program. So they've created a kind of cookie cutter that any other jurisdiction in Ontario, and I'm assuming around the world, could literally grab and just put and install right into their government. One of the, the challenges, I mean, that's, that's great to hear. Um, one of the big challenges is that, that a lot of times um, developers and techies in general don't want to leverage other people's work. They want to do it themselves because they think they can do it better and faster and easier. Um, so often we, we underestimate the complexity of the problems that we're taking on and want to be given the, the, the freedom to be able to explore the, the, the solution in a way that makes sense for us. Um, but when you do that, you often, you know, you don't, you can't take advantage of, of all of the, the learnings that you get from from building on somebody else's data set. Now it could be that that the um, the the structure that's built for the the um, the city of Toronto is more complicated than what, what would be required for for Wolfville, Nova Scotia, but but there should be some similarities, and and if there aren't, then there should be enough. Um, there's enough small municipalities that have this common need that should be able to to unite together um, you know, under the leadership of the Federation of Canadian Municipalities or other organizations to go off and to build those tools at a scale that's relevant for them, that allows them to go off and to, to track the things that are going to help them be able to make better decisions going forward. So we've talked a lot about open source and, and things of that nature and websites, but one of a lot of your work is actually focused more on web accessibility. And by that, we're talking about things like disabilities, like blindness. How can a blind person navigate the web? Now, there are some legislations that mandate that websites be web accessible, but they're often not adhered to. Why do you think that is? And, and how can we get over that Trump, uh, over that Trump? How can we get over that hump? And at full disclosure, I do have a website 
reopengov.org, and I, I refuse to believe it would pass a web accessibility test, but I still want to ask the question nonetheless. So, so the most important thing about about web accessibility is to keep in mind that this is this is a journey. Um, your your website is never going to be one hundred percent accessible. Um, you just need to go off and focus on on learning more and making sure that every day your site is a little bit more accessible than it was before. And and if you take that mindset, then you can reach out and find some basic tools and find some flaws in it and look at ways to go off and, and, and start asking questions on a regular basis to see what can you do to be better. Um, and and so that's that's um, that's definitely a huge part of the 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 mindset that that we try to go off and to build in with our communications with our clients. Um, and, and it's been interesting, like web accessibility is is a is a really um, the big challenge is, is that there, there hasn't really been enforcement. Um, and, uh, and everyone is, is so excited by the newest shiny flashy tools um, that they're, they're not looking at, at how do they address the needs of, um, of people with disabilities. And, and that's, people think about this as a, as a really small portion of the population, but, it, but it's actually pretty significant. Um, you know, it's not just blind users and deaf users. I mean, there are certainly those people, but, but it's also, um, it's, it's, well, it's one in seven people according to StatsCan. So if you've got a team of seven people, there's probably one of them that has a, identifies as, as having at least one disability. Um, and that can be dyslexia, it can be colorblindness, it can be um, mobility challenges. Um, there's, there's so many different ways that, that people interact with digital tools and with the physical world, but, but with digital tools as, as well uh, in this context. Um, and, and you need to be able to um, if you can write off one in seven people, I mean, that's, that's a, certainly the government can't, the government of Canada can't legitimately write off one in seven people. Um, most businesses can't afford to write off one in seven people, but it hasn't sort of been at the forefront. Um, and the other side is I, I try to think about accessibility in terms of, of not just the, the people with permanent disabilities, but there's people with temporary disabilities and people with, with situational disabilities. So for instance, right recently I, I went off and, and um, I kicked a ball for my dog and and i um i've been trying to stay off of it because i think i fractured a bone in in in, uh, in my my foot oh, um, wow. <laughs> just, it, it was yeah this was a month ago and it's like this is still so annoying but i mean and i can walk on it but it just it causes me pain so i don't go very far and i don't i don't walk like i used to um until my foot feels better but that's a, a clear example of a temporary disability if, if you are um there's all sorts of people who have temporary disabilities that that are because of um, medication or injuries or um, you know there's there's all kinds of ways that like even if you're there's all the people who have glasses and wear glasses and if they if they don't have um, their glasses with them then they can't necessarily go off and and read the email that they would you know with their with their proper prescription glasses on Um, so so that's a you know a really simple example of a temporary disability Situational disabilities are, are another one that a lot of people face. If you've got a um, if you've got a nice sunny office or a, and, and and the sun comes in and it's beautiful and whatnot, it's really hard to go off and to see the the um, to see your screen to be able to see the content that that, that, that whereas opposed if you're sitting in a dark room. Um, another great example is, is uh, you know how many presentations have you seen that it's really hard to read because they were built on a 
um, on a desktop that has really crisp definition, but then they're broadcast on a uh, LED LCD uh, projector and uh, and with with some some additional light bleeding in, and it's really hard to figure out what it is that they're they're trying to say with this gray on gray background. So that's a that's a situational disability. If they were doing the presentation at night, then it wouldn't be a problem because there'd be no light bleeding in. But but in the daytime with sunlight, then that's a that's a, a huge issue for people, and and we don't think about about these implications because we're 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 used to to creating content um, in an ideal environment, and, and that's just not how people um, are are living and working with with technology anymore. Technology is with us all of our um, you know basically twenty four hours a day, and um, and if we we may want to be, be accessing it on our phone or through our Google home device or through virtual reality or through, you know, so many ways that, that we, we interact and engage with, with our technology beyond just our desktop computers. So we need to start thinking about, about how do we, how do we think about, about improving the access of, of our information and, and our digital content, however people want to be, be, uh, be, consuming it. Um, so right now with the, the COVID crisis, uh, this is another example where where people, a lot of people who are in the public sector were able to go off and to um, effectively communicate and, and work together because they were, were they were in person most of the time and those meetings were in person and they built um, tools and, and approaches to dealing with, with those in-person meetings. Um, when you suddenly bring it so that, so that everything is digital, then, then suddenly maybe somebody has a harder time hearing somebody and, and, and making and communicating with them because they can't see the subtle uh, gestures that they, they make or that there's a slight delay that makes it difficult for them to focus on. Or there's, there's elements where we're you know, just not being not not having a high bandwidth, for instance, is, is a, something that can go off and, and can make it very difficult and slow for, for people to go off and access information because the sites were built assuming that you had um, high-speed broadband, broadband access to, 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 to navigate it. And, and that's just not the reality for, uh, for much of, of well, for reality when, when everyone's working from home. You can't assume that, you, that everyone has bandwidth. So Actually, it's an interesting point that you bring up because one of the fun stories that I like to talk when I mention web accessibility or accessibility in general is that oftentimes while accessibility is viewed as a cost, right? It takes a lot more time. It takes some work the benefits are not just for those one out of sevens. A lot of the times those benefits come for the general public. Like for example, having a much quicker website, but the, the story that I always use is one from Toronto, which deals with transit. Right. So when you jump on, on a streetcar or when you jump on a, on a bus, there's auditory signals. Like you're approaching this stop, like the, there's a, you know, it tells you what stop you're coming to. Um, it, it t- and you cannot, there's also a uh, visual cue there's a, that says you're approaching this stop. As even though I'm fully capable, I, I'm not someone that I would identify as having disabilities. Those are extraordinarily helpful. But the only reason why those are on streetcars and subways and, and, and buses is because of a lawsuit from disabled communities uh, in Toronto who said to the TTC, hey, how are we supposed to know what stop we're at? There's yeah. got to be better ways. So they introduce all this technology and it turns out that it helps a lot more than one out of seven people. 
It's it's absolutely true. And and uh, I mean, I, I remember back when they started adding um, the automatic door openers to, uh, to to doors at Carleton University and seeing, you know, how many people were using those to go off and get in and out of, of uh, um, the, the uh, you know, open doors when they, they could just open the door. There's nothing stopping them from opening the door, but they found it just that much easier just to tap the, the button and to, to carry on through. Or if they're carrying like groceries, that's one of those like sort of situational disabilities that you would think of. You got your hands full of groceries, you bump it with your butt or you bump it with your foot. And yeah. 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 It's so useful to go off and have that. And, and curb cuts are another one that people often point to. Mm. And, uh, and I think that the, I mean, I think the reality is, is that we're all trying to juggle so many things and, and, at this time, we're juggling more than than ever as people are working from home and 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 often trying to go off and balance kids and and families and and work and and friends and there's so many things coming at us at so many different levels. We don't really have a a um, a quiet space to go off and to to focus on the work at hand and be able to go off and manage that. So trying to make sure that it's accessible and organized um, and and really written in plain language so that it's something that 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 people can understand as they're they're managing their busy, chaotic, hectic lives. Um, I think that's a really important part of 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 accessibility and something that that people often overlook. Okay, so we got to start thinking about wrapping up the episode here. But before we go, I want to give you an opportunity. Is there anything that we haven't discussed yet that that you want to bring up? I guess there's two things that I think are are uh, are, are worthwhile going off and adding. Um, one is is that um, that we just recently added a uh, an accessible business hub, uh, accessiblebusinesshub.ca, um, and that's essentially a space to go off and organize information, um, not just for businesses but for for people with disabilities and for for organizations who are looking at at understanding what the the um, the implications of of COVID are for people with disabilities um, in uh, in in Canada and, and try to have something that's, that's specifically focused on, on Canadian legislation and best practices here for, for dealing with this virus. So that's, that's a, a small initiative that we, we um, were, were involved in and, and excited about trying to go off and to, to look at ways for, for us to go off and help better support and uh, a community of people with disabilities in Canada. Um, the other thing is we've got a, a newsletter that, uh, that we've been, uh, been putting out for, the last seven months and, and uh, there's a lot of information there about accessibility and trying to to raise awareness uh, about this this issue and the, the various different complexities behind it because um, there's this is something that that uh, this is a really deep issue and, and, and I'm an accessibility expert but there's so much that I don't know there's so much that is is um, is, is is beyond what what I've had experience with and so sort of being able to to, uh, to point to other resources and to engage people with with the uh, on the process of learning and, and, and becoming part of the, the journey of, 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 uh, of looking at, at uh, web accessibility and, and, and ways to go off and, and to to improve improve their content over time. Well, you're doing some fantastic work and I'm you know like you were mentioning you're in the, you've been in the space for you've been in the space for 20 years. And I have a feeling you'll be in the space for a lot longer and we need people like you in the community to keep sort of, you know, preaching the choir or not preaching to the choir, but um, uh, singing the gospel. That's the term I'm looking for. So we thank you for that. And then please don't stop. Thank you, Richard. You, you've, you've organized some, some really amazing um, interviews and, and uh, it's been really flattering to go off and to be amongst uh, so many of the, the amazing people that you've, you've brought onto your, your podcast. So, so really appreciate this opportunity to talk with you. 
Oh, it was my pleasure. And, and thank you dearly for, for being part of the interview. And we also want to thank our audience for listening. And as usual, please leave us a rating or a comment on how to make the podcast better or if there's any guests or any stories that you'd like to hear. So until next time, let's make it open.